I want people to come away thinking about the way we treat meat in the U.S. as a construction, as an idea that isn't rooted in any necessity, but is something that we can actively change and that it doesn't require this wholesale giving up of meat necessarily. It just requires more attention being paid to where that meat might be coming from if one does choose to eat it. I'm Anna LaPay, and this is Real Food Reads, the podcast from Real Food Media, where we connect with authors of some of the most interesting books today on food, politics, and culture. Bleeding Fake Meat Burgers, actress Abby Plaza taking a spin to shill for the dairy industry. What eating a plant-based diet has to do with social justice, punk rock, feminism, and more. These are just some of the things food writer Alicia Kennedy and I had a chance to talk about in advance of the release of her first book, No Meat Required, The Cultural History and Culinary Future of Plant-Based Eating. For those of you who don't follow her, Alicia Kennedy is a renowned writer focused on writing about plant-based foods and food politics and has a fabulous substack I highly recommend. Alicia and I are connected in a variety of ways, and I'm indebted to her because she very generously contributed a recipe to the 50th anniversary edition of the book my mother wrote way back in 1971, Diet for a Small Planet. It was such a pleasure to connect with Alicia to discuss her fabulous book, and I'm glad to share that conversation with you here now. Alicia, so great to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. I love how when you talk about vegetarianism or plant-centered eating, how much for you this way of eating is full of abundant potential. Uh, You write, quote, finding food where I didn't know it existed. This is a gift that being vegetarian has given me. And you begin the book talking about cooking banana blossoms and you end talking about eating passion fruit. So I would love to begin our conversation. Uh, I know this is like the most cliche question of an interviewer, you know, what did you have for breakfast? So I won't put it quite that way, but I would love to have you share another example of one of the recent foods you've cooked or eaten that brings to life what I really see as a core theme about your or reflections on eating a plant-centered diet, this theme around abundance and diversity? Well, I'm so glad you noticed that because I think that that was a really important point that the book opened with food and ended with food because I, I do think that a lot of people who aren't participants in this world or who aren't connected to it in any way tend to only see the lack um, that they perceive in a, in a plant-based diet. And so... I, you know, what have I eaten lately that's been really beautiful? We have tomatoes are great right now here in Puerto Rico. Um, I want to say that I've been eating fruit, but I really haven't. I've been eating dried dates. Uh, I don't know when the the good fruit will come back into season, but um, we've been eating a lot of okra. You know, Um, we really do. I love that. I feel like okra gets a really bad rap. Yeah. And I'm going to write a little bit about how I cook the okra because I think, you know, it does have that bad rap. It has that gluey wrap. And so uh, it can actually be super flavorful. And we have beautiful green and purple okra that we get from a farmer here that um, I really enjoy. So we we just eat when things are good. We just eat a ton of them. And that's that's really the thing. (laughs) I love that. And I love both in your book, but also, as I mentioned at the opening note, I mean, you've been writing about these themes for so long. For me, one of the core messages that I get from your writing is the the beauty, the deliciousness, the fun, the experimentation, all of and all of that and more that comes from moving meat off your plate 
either entirely or out of the center uh, for those who choose to still eat some meat. Uh, I'm just curious how you describe that the vision that you had, the impact that you were hoping a reader would have reading this book, and then how much maybe has that changed once you started writing it? And then how much has that shifted again once it's out in the world and you've actually been hearing what questions people have or pushback or ideas that have come up? Yeah, I'm super interested in what people will take or push back from in the book. I'm sure there's a lot and I, I am bracing myself for that. When I initially wanted to write this book, I wanted to write a vegan history in the US. And that, as I write, I think I write a bit about things that have happened in my personal life, but also just understanding a little bit more about agriculture and, and you know, diverse ecosystems and culturally appropriate foods and, and just kind of understanding that, you know, veganism wasn't going to be the right thing necessarily for everybody and it didn't have a perfect politics attached to it. Um, it was really, you know, transformative for me. And so then I wanted to write more expansively about vegetarian food or, or just in general, this idea of plant-based eating, plant-centered eating. Um, and so what I want people to take away from it, whether they eat meat or not, whether they still eat meat or not, is just the idea that it doesn't have to be the way it is, <laughs> the way we regard meat in the United States, especially as, you know, this necessary protein fuel at every meal, um, you know, over 220 pounds of meat a year per person doesn't have to be the way things are. It's not a natural way that things are. Um, it's not the most functional way for for things to be. And it's it's artificially subsidized by tax dollars. And so I want people to come away thinking about the way we treat meat in the U.S. as a construction, as an, as an idea that isn't rooted in any necessity, but it's something that we can actively change and that it doesn't require this wholesale giving up of meat necessarily. It just requires more mindfulness and more attention being paid to where that meat might be coming from if one does choose to eat it. Mm -hmm. It was interesting in reading the book and hearing your answer to that question of the impact you were hoping it would have is seeing how much and it's you know shifted somewhat over the decades, but how much in this U.S. diet culture around diets, how much meat has taken on this kind of political signifier and right. how it's sort of gotten weaponized a bit most recently in kind of culture wars and, you know, you're going to take my hamburger out of my cold, dead hands kind of, <laughs> you know, pushback. And I would love to hear you talk about how much you see meat having that kind of political signification and, and where you think that comes from and, and how you've seen that change over time. Well, it, you know, it's connected to the idea of the U.S. as an exceptional nation, uh, the abundance of meat. Uh, that's why we saw in 2020 President Trump at the time uh, invoking the Defense Powers Act to make sure that the meatpacking industry was kept open. We've recently seen laws calling for like a return to child labor just to keep meatpacking going. And, you know, it's it's wildly political because of its attachment to this American identity, as well as ideas of masculine virility and this dominion over over animals that's very significant in, in certain certain places. And so, you know, it's connected to notions of freedom. We think that, well, to to ha eat any less meat would be to be less American. 
it's just connected to all of these really significant cultural ideas. So it's really hard to get out of that political space. Yeah. 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 And you write in the book how Biden early in his presidency moved a billion dollars to the meat industry. And you mentioned multiple times in the book, the what is it, the $38 billion of of taxpayer subsidies. And what you were getting at in your answer to my, my question also ties into another another theme that you have in the book I would love to hear you talk some more about was this connection between kind of feminist movements and a mm-hmm. feminist sensibility and vegetarianism. You know, and I think that for a lot of people that's like, wait, how are those connected? I really came to give up meat in a way as a feminist. You know, I gave it up for myriad reasons. You know, it was something I'd kind of always dabbled in. It was something that felt important to me at the time for reasons of, uh, you know, the environment, but also just not wanting to be complicit in in any violence against Mm -hmm. animals. And so, you know, and then when I started to understand the position of ecofeminism, to read uh, Carol J. Adams' work, to read the Bloodroot cookbooks, to get into Legusty Yearwood's work, who's a chocolatier in New Paltz, New York. Like, when I started to understand the ecofeminist position, and this, there are kind of numerous ecofeminist positions, frankly, like there's not actually consensus on -hmm. on meat eating. I mean, there's no consensus on anything in food. (laughs) All of these connections were, have always been so strong to me that the the ways in which we regard meat as significant, necessary, um, virile uh, Mm -hmm. is, and the way we create this dominion over animals is very much connected to patriarchy and to control of women's bodies as well. And so that connection was really always clear. And I was really excited when I got to write the book that I I could kind of draw it out a bit more and a bit longer. Hopefully, you know, it it is a a connection that I think is, is surprising to people, but it is one that to me has always been very clarifying in terms of my own positions. Yeah. And as you say, I think that the way that the meat industry itself has been part of framing that narrative around meat being this really a, a signifier of your virility and of your masculinity. Uh, and you just referencing uh, Augustus Luscious. And I have to say, I loved your description of some of the chocolate. So uh, I the one in particular, and this ties directly to like this very kind of punk feminist perspective that one of the chocolates that you described was called um the furious vulva that it's formed in a vulva mold um with pink peppercorns and hawaiian pink salt you're right it's a bit sassy a lot cute and a delicate match of spice and bitterness (laughs) i love that (laughs) yeah i love her chocolate so much yeah before i even opened the book and, and dug in i felt like there was no way that you could write a book in 2023 about plants that are eating without having to engage with and talk at least at some point about the the trend of tech companies getting into the business of food, but specifically into kind of positioning themselves around kind of many of the environmental reasons people are choosing to give up yeah. meat, but pushing instead of, so instead of eating meat, you all should be eating actual food that is not meat, (laughs) but instead developing cultured meat, lab-grown meat. How do you make sense of that, this growth of this business model? And to you, how much do you see it as really an expression of and connecting to this ethos of plant-centered eating that you hold, or how much of it do you feel is uh, totally different? Totally, you know, something totally different. 
I think it's totally different from what my understanding of what plant-based eating is and what it should aspire to. I, I think we should be aspiring to, you know, regionally uh, independent or food sovereign regionality, agroecology, um, you know, uh, a more food justice orientation toward how how folks decide what is grown and what should be grown in a, in a place. And so I, I find these products to be a distraction mm-hmm. from these kinds of changes that I think a lot of people know in their heart of hearts are necessary to actually uh, maintain the survival of the planet, um, to go toward bi- more biodiversity and to return land to those who have historically stewarded it in the most responsible manner. Um, but like the, the writing is on the wall that that's kind of what's necessary. And I think the people who could stand to profit from greenwashing products saw that they could do that. And so they did, but I don't, for me, you know, this, the inevitability of these products is really up for debate. And I think that we've seen that in the last, you know, six months, uh, beyond meat stock dropping sales, plummeting of plant-based meat, a lot of headlines about the struggle, um, food, Media is coming back to the veggie burger. You know, there's been like three eater pieces, I think, in like the last six months about can we just keep veggie burgers? Do we have to have impossible burgers everywhere? And so like, I think that and now Shake Shack has a veggie burger in addition to their shroom burger. Um, And they like very, you know, they rolled it out in a really intentional and big way to say this is an actual veggie burger. And I don't think that that's like, I don't think a veggie burger has gotten this much fanfare since like Superiority (laughs) Burger debuted in 2015 uh, or a little before that. So like it's it it really shows a a flip back toward actually these things were kind of cool and novel, but I think I can just eat a veggie burger. And, you know, lab meat, we haven't even seen the approval, which has always been really interesting to me and seeing it treated as an inevitability, um, cultured or cultivated meat, you know, the numbers aren't really there in terms of its sustainability or its ability to scale up without also using a ton of energy. Um, I always kind of compare it to electric vehicles versus public transportation, where it's like, are we going to just use a lot more energy and not actually change where the the source of that energy is and just continue with this individual way forward? Or are we going to actually, to use a quote from Clueless, get in the get in the kitchen and rearrange a few things so that we can <laughs> like do things in a way that actually functions? So I, I just see these things as, as big distractions. They've gotten a lot of good press because, you know, people love to say veggie burgers were bland and terrible and awful and everything like that. And it's like, uh, that's maybe not true so <laughs> yeah yeah and it's also like yeah they've gotten a lot of press well they've also had a, a, a ton, ton of, of publicity money. dollars ton of yeah. dollars to get that press and it reminds me of uh it was in uh, Anand Garita Hadassah's book Winners Take All he has this great section uh describing being on this luxury cruise with all of these venture capitalists and Silicon Valley investors and hearing this presentation from one of them basically kind of saying the quiet part out loud talking about how part of what their job is, is creating narratives that have people assume that the future that they are going to profit from is inevitable. Yeah, exactly. And so, so much of the hype I felt around this is like, 
isn't this just the industry, these companies who want us all to think, well, inevitably it's all going to pass through regulatory systems. Inevitably, yeah. people are just going to want this food as opposed to this is being driven by the companies themselves. Yes, yes. And then the other thing that I think that it really reinforces in terms of narratives that, that you get to a bit in your book as well is it really continues to dangerously focus the attention on protein. Yeah. yeah. I mean, even calling them alt protein. I know you talk about my mom's book, Die for a Small Planet, that came out in 1971 and how, you know, when she first wrote that book, 26 years old, someone who grew up in Fort Worth, Texas, raised on meat and potatoes, realizing actually you do not need to eat meat to survive. <laughs> but at the time she wrote the book, there was still this uh, misunderstanding that you needed to, you needed to be kind of careful and you had to combine your proteins at the same meal to be sure that as a vegetarian, you were getting your protein needs met. Something that 10 years later, of course, she understood so much better. And yeah. the evidence was so much more clear that there is so much available protein in the plant kingdom and no one has to obsess about the protein we eat. Most of us are eating twice as much as our bodies can even use. And so I'm wondering for you, is that does that resonate too? How this like the alt meat, lab meat, all of that narrative to, is kind of reinforcing this false idea of needing to be so concerned about protein. 100%. This idea that protein is the nutrient that everyone needs to like gorge on every day, we know that it's nutritionally false. But even further away from it being nutritionally false, like as you said, we know that we get a ton of protein just from eating vegetables, from eating beans, from eating soy foods. Like there's there's literally no reason to really be concerned. Like, I mean, obviously the outliers, a bodybuilder, you know, that's a right. different story. Uh, you're living a different life if you're a bodybuilder. But like for most of us, there is just no reason to be obsessed with protein. Um, and, you know, and it's something that obviously people need to discuss individually with their doctors. And, th and that's another reason why I've kind of come away from sort of being really prescriptive. But at the same time, it's it's just on a on a grand scale, we know that this is this is so false, and they're profiting off of the a false narrative about protein. Well, I mentioned in the opening how you and I are connected in various ways uh, and how you generously <laughs> contributed a recipe to this 50th anniversary edition of Diet for a Small Planet. And in no Meat Required, you reference a few of the other fabulous people who contributed recipes, including the authors of Decolonize Your Diet and my friend Brian Terry, who uh, I wrote my second book, Grub With. And I loved how you brought Brian's voice into the book. And as you did, you lifted up this really long history of the connection between swaths of social justice movement leaders, Black social justice leaders, including the Black Panthers, organizing against food apartheid and for food justice and really connecting that to plant-centered eating. I really see the work that Bryant has done really now over two decades as part of powerful voices and perspectives really help expanding uh, and more accurately articulating what plant-centered eating is. Um, mm -hmm. And I think a diet that I think for so long, the mainstream press has really tried to constrain to this kind of white middle-class proclivity. And yeah. um, and I would just love to hear you reflect more on that and and even maybe a bit about how in writing the book and having those conversations with Brian and others, how, uh, how your thinking has evolved. Yeah, it, it was so interesting. I mean, obviously, you know, I was born in 1985. So like when I was a teenager, 
you know, people were vegetarian or vegan for a lot of reasons. And it was always a countercultural decision Mm -hmm. uh, for the most part. And so I always saw it as something in line with I guess what I describe in the book is like this more punk ethos of like, mm-hmm. you know, damn the man down with corporate food kind of a thing. Right. And so- or as, as you say, like in the punk section in your book, you quote this punk zine where you say veganism is a great way to say fuck you to the powers that be. Yes. <laughs> I know. Yeah, that's the ethos, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so I never thought of it as something like divorced from like a social justice perspective, you know? And so like, but then you, when I got older and was vegan and like ran a vegan bakery on Long Island and like started to write about veganism, then you kind of, and you start to see the memes about veganism. And then you start to realize, oh, wow, people really have this perception that this is for white people. It's for people Mm -hmm. who like to yell at other people about what Mm -hmm. they do and the choices that they make. A white veganism exists, you know, the same way a white feminism exists. And it, it can be exclusionary. It can be kind of oblivious to uh-huh. to its privileges. And so, you know, that was something I definitely wanted to address kind of at length and throughout the the book. And my conversation with Bryant that I had in 2020, I did that originally for my podcast. But when I was writing the book, I just found myself constantly going back to it. I wanted to quote it at length as a way of giving, you know, giving, I was trying to kind of create a chorus of voices in this book that aren't the people that everyone always associates with plant-based eating. And though Bryant Terry is a very famous uh, vegan cook and vegan cookbook author, I also think that his success speaks to this, this history and this lineage that people try to ignore in, in plant-based eating. And so I wanted him to kind of like be the thread to that lineage of, of civil rights Mm -hmm. leaders who, who were stopping eating meat. Um, I wanted to, include Amy Kishis because she started Veggie Mijas and she's a queer Latinx vegan who had, you know, was talking about reclaiming quinoa and, you know, obviously authors of Decolonize Your Diet. Um, you end up in the book as well because of your book with Bryant Terry too, to talk about social justice um, mm-hmm. as it connects to food movements. I think a lot of the time in the mainstream idea of like what good food is or like vegetarian food is it's a lot of moosewood it's a lot of deborah madison and it's probably a little bit of alice waters though she's not really you know associated closely with vegetarian or veganism and right. that's right. great she's, and she's been great. Uh, her her restaurant's been a site of direct action uh right. for the fact that she serves meat yeah <laughs> but yeah <laughs> Yeah. And so I, you know, sometimes these things, the ways that things get perceived in the mainstream and it it can be very narrow. And so I just wanted to break that open a bit. Right. No, I think you did that so well. In the book, you did a ton of research and I love that scene where you're like in the stacks at the library, like seeing these punk zines that are making these connections between food justice and veganism. Um, I'm just, right. you know, really love that. And that your point being that, you know, often how these uh, themes have been talked about in the mainstream press has been really, really narrow and, uh, and depoliticized. And yeah. I feel like what you're doing in this book is broadening that scope and kind of re, uh, re-fomenting uh, the, the politics of, of these choices. You quote in the book, uh, I think it was a zine, no, a book called Protest Kitchen. Yes, by Carol or, Adams. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you say, um, 
uh, you quote a section that says, a plant-based diet is a way of voicing our resistance to a political system that denies climate change and refuses to address it. And, you know, reading that certainly music to my ears as someone who's trying to get people to see this food and climate connection and how the meat industry is a key driver of the crisis. Um, But I I also think this brings up another point you make in the book, which is this kind of um, tension about individual choices that, of course, diet choices are and something, you know, as as enormous as climate change. And I think when you start trying to draw those connections, you immediately butt up against the kind of the naysayers who will push back and argue individual choices don't make a difference. Uh, It also connects to what we now know, thanks to great investigative reporting, that the fossil fuel industry has actually actively pursued narratives to individuate the problems of the climate crisis and to say it's, you know, on you individual consumer to fix this. It's not our fault, you know, over here in the industry that's really driving it. And so I'm curious, you know, you're at the dinner party and you have a friend that (laughs) says like, okay, but at least just, you know, what difference does a lentil burger really make? Like, how do you engage with that? Well, it's I try to say in the book that I was once that person. Like I, mm-hmm. I said that to my friend at her like sweet sixteen. Oh, right, you mentioned <laughs> so, that in like, the book, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so, like, I understand completely where it's coming from. It is really, really hard to make political sense of what is ultimately a consumer boycott. But and I've written more about this uh, since the book has gone into production, which is that lifestyle is political. And we can make choices that make things better for other people, for the planet, for ourselves, for our local communities. Like these choices aren't made in a vacuum. And it is the people who are responsible who want us to believe that every decision doesn't actually matter. And I make Mm -hmm. the connection as well a lot to fashion and fast fashion. Same way you can mindlessly in New York, say, buy, uh, you know, a non-organic banana and the farmer in Ecuador had breathed in pesticides that, you know, were harmful to him. Uh, And you can mindlessly do that and eat that banana and and go on living. You can also go into H&M or Zara and buy a cheap dress that the person on the other side of the planet uh, sewed for you was paid like a well sub living wage for that. And the level of normalcy in the global north that we expect from food, from fashion, from a whole host of consumer goods is usually built on someone else's suffering, another land suffering. And but it's very easy to ignore. And it's very easy to say, well, I want my banana and I want my cheap mm-hmm. dress, so I don't care. But we are at a point obviously, where we have to care. I try to just make the case that if we do collectively make decisions to be more mindful consumers, we basically just have a better life. Like, I mean, you know, talking about like, I'm eating banana blossoms. I never thought there was food here. Actually, when I had those, my local farmer had just kind of given them to me because they weren't going to do anything with them. So like, but that's a relationship that I have with a farmer who is going to provide me food. And I think that like in our individualized, like hyper consumerist US culture, we kind of lose sight of how much we're losing by living in a very fast and Mm -hmm. thoughtless manner. You have this line in the book that I feel like I want to like pin on my wall when you around this uh, this exact question where you write, now I know how to do the delicate dance to show how individual choices work as tiny bricks thrown against the window of tyranny. 
I was like, next time I get this question, next time I get this question, I'm just going to quote Alicia Kennedy and be like, here you go. (laughs) I loved that. Um, The other thing I was just rereading was this new investigative report. It it was published in The Guardian by Joe Fassler, and it was his kind of an expose on how much the meat industry pours into public relations, you know, how we understand meat, its role in our culture. And uh, he described that even uh, the U.S. beef industry even has a a free online training course, which I had never heard before reading this article, (laughs) called the Masters of Beef Advocacy or MBA program that has 21,000 graduates and how the industry also funds basically essentially a war room in Denver where they're tracking social media about meat. And I, and it made me think like, are those people like tracking Alicia Kennedy's Twitter feed because, you know, like, and how threatened are they? But I'm curious about, uh, you know, how you see this showing up, even if you've had personal experiences, but how you see this showing up, pushing back against the kind of public education that I feel like, again, this book is a part of, but you have a Substack. you're, you know, out there on Twitter, you're doing public events, you know, you're trying to fundamentally, you know, upend the messaging from this deep pocketed industry and curious other ideas also you have about how do we push back when we are so outgunned in terms of funding? If I thought of myself as fighting against big beef, I don't know if I would get up in the morning. I, you know, I have to see my work as I get, as you just said, maybe the tiny bricks um, and, you know, the shifting of consciousness, which I think it was really important to the feminists uh, in the 70s. And I think that that's another thing that maybe we don't think about enough and, and how important that is, which is, you know, just making people more aware of of the issues and just how much like Joe Fassler's work is so important because he's he re- he wrote that great expose against lab meat as well. Yeah. Um, when he was at the counter um, and now this this really great piece on big beef. And I you know, the it can't be stated enough that these folks are doing this because they're they're afraid of losing their power and their money. Um, and I think it's really interesting to consider why are they so afraid? And I mean, you did you see the Dairy Council's recent like wood milk thing? Oh, God, with Aubrey <laughs> Plaza. And I love yes. her as an actress. And I was like, I know. oh, my gosh. So yeah, describe what that is for people listening who didn't see it. I mean, it's ridiculous. It's so ridiculous, but they're making fun of the idea of like making milk from plants, from oats, from almonds, from soy, et cetera. Like these ideas that have happened for thousands of years. And so like, but the, she, Aubrey Plaza, who is like very popular among millennials and Gen Z is kind of making a mockery of plant milks by talking about being an investor in wood milk um, and milking <laughs> trees. And, you know, it's just really, it's the action of a scared industry and it's really kind of pathetic. Um, and so I think that it's a similar thing that's happening with with Big Beef, you know, having influencers and, and this education program. It's really interesting to, to when the people who have historically had all the power are like very minutely challenged and become so, so terrified. These folks with all their money and all their power were to step back and be like, actually, how could we do things a little bit better? How can mm-hmm. we make sure small dairy farms do stay in business? You know, like that would be admirable, but it's not what happens. Obviously, that's not how our system is set up. But I, I don't wake up every day and think about 
these things. I try and focus on the on the vegetables themselves. And have you gotten any any blowback? I mean, have you sort of been at the the tip of the spear of any kind of pushback from industry? Or, oh or, no, yeah. I'm I'm very. I think I'm very niche, you know. And also, I think I'm very like. Uh, you know, I'm not an investigative journalist. Uh-huh. I'm I'm an essayist for the most part. Like I'm talking about these things at like a very high level, like cultural problem, and like from also like an aesthetic perspective. Yeah. I'm not, you know, the person who's going to be like throwing a Molotov cocktail into an industrial farm. Um, right. Or like Oprah. Like I just saw Maintenance, maintenance <laughs> right. Phase's most recent podcast was about Oprah, uh, you know, which I can remember at my age. I, I remember, I remember yeah. happening, right? Oprah uh, raising questions about mad cow disease and the beef industry went after Oprah. And really yeah. uh, the fact that, you know, Oprah of all people would be intimidated. It's like, if Oprah is intimidated, <laughs> then you know <laughs> that it's an industry that has real power. Yeah. Yes. Um, very, very real power. Well, it's been so lovely talking with you. Thank you for this wonderful book. It's such a great contribution to all of our understanding about all the big issues uh, that you talk about in the book. So thank you for your great work. Thank you so much for having me. I'm Anna LaPay, and that was Alicia Kennedy talking about her new book, No Meat Required. Thanks for listening to the Real Food Reads podcast. Join the book club and find out about future book selections, author interviews, and other resources at realfoodmedia.org. You can go there to listen to Real Food Reads and our sister podcast, Foodtopias. Look for Real Food Media wherever you get your podcasts. You can also support our work and access premium content and bonus episodes on Patreon. Thanks for listening.